the ramp or cell record was done on um, a Marshall amp, like a Marshall practice amp, but man, the thing screamed. And uh, it was just one of those Marshall practice amps that Don Fury had with the, with the tone turned all the way up, with the uh, uh, presence turned all the way up, because the presence gave it that kind of brightness. Yeah, it was like the energy yeah. button. Yeah. You know, you want energy, you turn that, that presence up. So it was the presence all the way up and the gain all the way up on this Marshall practice amp. And it just sounded great. You know, because Les Pauls are a heavy guitar. You need to brighten up the sound on the amp yeah. or else it's, or else it's going to sound muddy. Yeah. So, you know, you scoop the mitts, you make it real bright, you have the Les Paul and bam, you know, it sounds fantastic. So, you know, uh, and we kind of, especially with Don, Don was famous for the small practice amps. And he, I mean, he knew cause he was light years ahead of the rest of us. Um, he knew overdriving a small amp gets you that sound that you want. And I don't think we figured that stuff out. I know I didn't figure that stuff out until, you know, I was well into my thirties going, you need, just need to overdrive a one ten inch speaker. And it's, and it gives you the tone you want as long as you're using the right mics. You know, another thing that Don Fury did, and he probably stumbled upon it too, but everything was mic'd very, very close, mm -hmm. and the vocals barely had any reverb on it. So everything was just in your face. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You know, sometimes you experiment around, like, you know, with guitar stuff, and you put the mic kind of like far away, and, you know, the, you'll have the, you know, a good amount of reverb on the singer's voice. <clears throat> but for hardcore, you want it to sound like somebody is standing right here screaming in your face. So everything was close, Mike, not a lot of reverb on anything. And it gave it that kind of like immediate sound of being like in your face. So that was, that was Don Fury's big trick and it worked. Yeah. You know, so what's, uh, what's funny too about Don Fury's, uh, and I don't think we've talked about Don Fury's yet on the podcast. I think this is the first time. Um, I think we got to get him on. Having yeah, been there. Should having been there at the time and hearing all the the demos through the years that came through and the sound like there was always that sound that Don had that was obviously unique to Don but I demoed there after it wasn't Don's studio anymore it was called Paradigm Studios someone else took over the space a friend of a friend and we demoed there and I maybe it's just me and actually I may send it to you guys to get your opinion but I, just the the physical space you're in, recording in that space, had a unique tone to it. And those recordings have a lot of those sonic qualities in those demos. And they had none of the equipment Don had. Don wasn't there. But it still had, it didn't have that sound, that hardcore sound. It was a different type of band anyway. No bubble. But that room, <laughs> that room had its own sound. Of course, it's it's all chemistry, and it's very unique. The, like the, it's something the, that you notice. The magic is when all those pieces come together for the perfect storm. The room, the amp, the guitar, the distortion box, the way the singer's voice layers over the guitars. You know, all the great records. It's just like that sweet spot where the chemicals all come together, and you know, you just get something out of it that's way beyond the sum of the parts, you know? So tone is like that too. It takes a lot of experimentation, takes a lot of, you know, trying different things, turning a lot of knobs, spending some time, knowing what you're going for. Like being able to hear how you want to hear it in your head and trying to recreate that as best you can in the room. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it takes some years to sort of, you know, get your head around it. By the time, you know, by the time I was in shelter, now I'm a total gearhead. Like now I'm starting to collect guitars. Um, and it was really cool too, because Shelter was, um, we got on concrete management, which, you know, they did like Typo and Anthrax and Pantera. And, you know, they were like a legit yeah. uh, management company. Was Sandy your manager? Yeah, Sandy was our manager. Sandy was, was Nine awesome. Lives manager as well. She was she our was, manager for a minute. She was fantastic. I mean, and then, you know, she's getting me all these string sponsorships. And then I'm understanding the strings have a lot to do with your sound. You know, I used to, uh, you know, the, the whole kind of like shelter sound was GHS boomers. Like I kind of fell in love with those strings. I still love those strings. I, you know, I use a lot of different kinds of strings these days. 
Um, but those GHS boomers are just, they're so bright sounding, you know what I mean? And so, you know, uh, and she got me a lot of gear. Um, you know, even, I tell you, even the pick that you use. Now, some people play aggressive music with a super thin pick. I will never freaking understand it. <laughs> Use a thicker pick, dude. It makes such a difference. You're going to play heavy music with a thin pick? Give me a break. You don't know what Tar you're pick, doing. Hot take. Yeah. You want a tip from me? If you're playing any kind of harder music, do not use a thin pick. It's it, it, it ruins your sound. It ruins your sound. <sighs> the way you pick, the pick that you use, the strings that you use, it, it all makes a difference. Yeah, it does. It really does. You know, I, you know, two people could, you, you know, I could have a guitar plugged into an amp and I could play something and I could hand that guitar to somebody else. And the way that they play is going to sound completely different. It has a lot to do with how you stroke, you know, the way that you're doing strokes, whether you did the downstrokes and the upstrokes are all downstrokes. You know, some people are more fluid. Some people are more kind of strummy. I, I like to be a little bit more kind of like downstroke, probably because I listen to, you know, cut my teeth listening to the Ramones. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about that, too. Like, regardless of gear choice, some guitar players, you can put anything in their hands and they're oh, going to yeah. sound like them right you know brian baker no matter what brian baker's playing you know stefan edgerton no matter what you know greg ginn no matter what's in his hands you know who's like that harley i've seen harley yes. get up on stage borrow a, a, a crappy ass bass from somebody walk over the amp flip a little dial and it's <laughs> you know it just sounds like him yeah because absolutely. it's actually him that's making that sound just by the absolutely. way he it absolutely but yeah that's that's um that's definitely something that i that i aspire for like i try to become a guitar player that has a lit has, has enough of my own style that when you hear it my style kind of comes through um yeah. you know i'm not I'm, I'm probably not like and you know it's funny that you mentioned brian baker because he's one of my he's one of my guitar heroes he should be one of everyone's guitar heroes. I agree. The guy is just a mon- you know, I remember one time Youth Today played, uh, it was really cool. We played Rock Against Racism in Washington, D.C. And Scream also played. Mm-hmm. And everybody was talking about Scream's got this new drummer that's like the best drummer you ever heard. His name's Dave Grohl. <laughs> and man, I'm Scream played with Dave Grohl playing drums and that guy banged, man. He was incredible. But that night we stayed, um, we were friends with Dagnesi's bass. Ray was friends with Dagnesi's bass player, Roger. And so we stayed at um, Dagnesi's house. They all lived in a, in a house together. And I remember Brian Baker was upstairs in his room playing like or writing songs. He had like a you know, practice and he was just playing. And I'm just listening to him through the ceiling. And I'm just like, this guy is a monster guitar player, like just a monster. Like he's ripping solos that, you know, you don't really hear in like Dag Nasty. He, he's even playing like kind of cleaner stuff with like arpeggios. And I was like, man, this guy can really play guitar even, oh, more, yeah. than he, even more than he shows in like, you know, even in Dag Nasty. No, for sure. I mean, yeah. a lot of people hate on field day. But oh some God. of the guitar playing, on yeah, field amazing. Day, amazing. you start to see where his real talent is and how he he doesn't need to overplay it and overshow it. Um, one day we have to get him on here. I think we've tried a couple of avenues. I don't think we're ever going to stop. We're going we're gonna to pull every favor we can get because I, I'd love to hear what makes that guy tick. Yeah. I tell you, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that recording. Like the recording on Field Day is actually the production is off, but the, yeah, the, the record is the songs yeah. are so good. Yeah, and I, I, I think even the singer didn't really kind of like nail it on that record. But just the actual music and the stuff that he was writing is just incredible. Yeah. Like as a guitar player, I'm listening to Field Day, and I'm just like, this isn't going to be my favorite record, but man, oh man, oh man. Brian Baker's guitar playing is just like next oh, yeah. level. Agreed. And that I was... tell you, you know, Brian Baker was really, 
he was a big influence on shelter actually, because, you know, after, you know, did you today, we did bring it down, you know, then we got into shelter and shelter was an eclectic enough band. And we were on Roadrunner, which was like a bigger label. And we're doing all these bigger tours where I kind of felt like I had a little bit more room to breathe. Because in Youth of Today, Youth of Today is just a certain sound. Like people want to hear Youth Crew. Youth of Today could never progress and do like our, you know, our some kind of like artistic record. You know, people mm -hmm. don't want to hear that. It's Youth of Today. That's almost the glory of it. Like we're, we're trying to bring back hardcore. You know, so there's a particular sound. And, you know, that was the sound that I went for in that band. And even like Judge. Okay, Judge, we're trying to be the heaviest motherfuckers in youth crew in straight edge you know what i mean but then in shelter shelter was just kind of like weird enough and the scene kind of changed like it was the 90s almost like anything goes yeah. mm -hmm. you want to be a weird band it was like quicksand into another you know all these post-hardcore people are playing like you know just weird music and that and it was just kind of cool because you could experiment way more than you could in the 80s when you know, you're playing a, a very particular kind of music. You know what I mean? Um, and so Shelter was like a time where I could kind of breathe and I could add more kind of music. Like if you listen to Attaining the Supreme, yeah, my influence is like, I love the Smiths. You can hear that on Attaining the Supreme. Like you're not hearing that on Bringing It Down. You know what I mean? There's elements of the Smiths and the Cure and the Cult. And, you know, all these kind of like, you know, alternative, who screwed do, you know, I, you know, I loved all that stuff. And I started bringing that kind of element into shelter, even, or even early on, you know, on like, uh, uh, free, you know, I, I played on that free will single. Love that, love that single. You know, that was stuff that seriously, that, that was kind of stuff that I was starting to pick up, you know, from Brian Baker. Because he would play, you know, the first time when I heard like that song Values Here, I'm like, what the fuck is he playing? Like, I never played an octave before. I didn't even know what an octave was. And I got the record and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm playing bar chords and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I'm playing single notes. I was like, that doesn't sound right. What the fuck is he playing? It doesn't sound like that. And I don't know how I figured it out, but I figured that was an octave. And it was so cool because it's like, as a songwriter, it's another color in your palette. Like if you said today, your colors were black and white, you know what I mean? And then Judge was like black and white and like silver and like gunmetal gray <laughs> and like maybe blue, like a dark blue, you know? But then when, you know, I'm listening to all this other stuff and like trying to figure out records and, and you know, and more melodic sounding records, it's like, wow, now I got a red, now I got a green, now I got a yellow. And, you know, Brian Baker used to always also play, like he play a chord with those two open strings, you know? Yeah. The and ringing that was like, EB. Exactly. And that's free will. You know, that was another color that I picked up from Brian, you know, basically from Brian Baker. Of course, it's played in my own style. I'm not trying to rip off Brian Baker and, you know, try to ape Brian Baker. But, you know, you take my influences and with those new colors mixed in and considering the climate of the time for the music scene was so open. That's the opening to the news, right? It's those those ringing EB, the chords that you're playing with those ringing or with the ringing EB, that's what you carried into attaining. That's what carried over into uh, mantra and, and forward. I mean, it's yeah. it was so much fun to hear you hold down the heavy while while painting that extra depth of, of ringing notes. And yeah, that was and really influential for us. And adding a little, like how to keep it sounding heavy and exciting and hardcore influence, but adding a little melody to it, you know, yeah. adding some, adding some different colors, adding some different textures, adding some different layers. You know, that's what also, that's what shelter was all about. And for me, as like a songwriter and as a guitar player, man, I'm loving life. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm loving life to, 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 to be able to just do that and experiment around with that. And, and, you know, people probably thought I was Joe hardcore 
but you know, like I said, I'm listening to the Smiths. I'm listening to Husker Du. Um, you know, I'm listening to all these kind of like, you know, um, more sort of melodic music. Yeah. And I was able to bring to bring a lot of that to the table, you know, in Shelter. So it was really, you know, people always ask me what my favorite band was, and I always say, without doubt, Shelter. You know, as a guitar player, as you know, a spiritualist, uh, you know, I appreciate and I love all the bands that I did, but just as like, just as a guitar player, being in Shelter, it was like a, it was a little bit more fun for me to be That's able awesome. to. And I mean, at the end of the day. That that's uh isn't that really the whole point and you know and my and my tone changed too it became a little bit more clean um you know still heavy but it wasn't like judge heavy it was like you know it was a little bit more kind of like melodic heavy and so my tone had to change i was actually i was playing a dual rectifier at that time which added a whole new different element, but I was using, but, you know, I started collecting guitars and I was using so many different guitars. And I tell you, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the magic ingredients on mantra, which why mantra gave it a whole different sound was I bought my first SG. And I tell you, you know, I, I, I almost bought that SG because, you know, I'm playing all these Les Pauls and I tell you, I, I, at that point, I had three Les Pauls. I had the black one. Um, I had the Gorilla Biscuits one, and I also brought that bought that white one, that white custom that became that I actually had painted green that I still have as like main my main guitar. That custom that I have right here, that's the heaviest goddamn guitar. Yeah. It's so much noticeably more heavier than my standards. I don't know what the fuck they put in that guitar. What kind of freaking <laughs> petrified wood they use for that particular guitar. But that guitar is so heavy. And I tell you. Well, and that's why was, it sounds so good. Because it's exactly, dense. Exactly. That wood is so dense. I'll hit a chord. That chord will sustain forever. That's how dense that wood is in that guitar. I remember carrying that guitar around and tuning it for you. It was yeah. heavy less ball. It's super heavy. And you know, by this point, we're a professional band. We're pre- you know, we're we're you know, we rented out a you know a monthly studio. We're practicing every single day for eight hours. Um, Ray would never let us sit down and practice. He's like, We're gonna practice, we're gonna we're going to practice like we play live. Like he wanted us to be as energetic in practice as we were, you know, playing live, which is, it's, it's a sort of a cool concept. But well, for eight hours. This, but when you got this freaking s- cinder blocks, you know, strapped over one shoulder, you're jumping around and you're kind of trying to, you know, capture that live energy for eight hours when you practice, you know, five, six, seven days a week. Man, it's killing my back. It's killing my shoulder, you know. So I bought a black Les Paul, a black SG, mm-hmm. just because I figured, man, I could practice with this thing, and you know, and it was so light and it was so fun to play. I really kind of just bought it to practice with it, so it, so you know, I would not have to go to a chiropractor by the time <laughs> I was effing thirty. But man, oh man, I fell in love with yeah. that SG. The first thing that I did was, you know, at this point, I was used to kind of like, you know, I understood that the pickup made such a difference. And those SG pickups that that come with, they're super, they're sort of like very, very clean sounding. They're thin sounding. Yeah, thin. Exactly. Thin sounding. So I ripped out that pickup. I ripped out both pickups and I got uh in the bridge position i put a seymour duncan super distortion let me tell you something that pickup screams dude i don't care what anybody says that seymour duncan super distortion and like i tell you it's all chemistry like you may take that seymour duncan seymour uh duncan super distortion and put in les paul it may sound terrible Mm -hmm. you may put in another guitar it may sound terrible i put it in that sg and the thing sounded incredible. And then in the bridge position, like I would only rip, I would only rip out, you know, the bridge pickup. I would never use a neck pickup. 
But for, for that SG in the neck pickup, I put, I believe it was a Jeff Beck. I think it was a Seymour, Seymour Duncan Jeff Beck pickup. And it sounded like almost bluesy. Yeah, JB. JB. Yeah. yeah. And that was in the neck position. And I actually used that all over Mantra. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it had kind of like, um, it had a very kind of deep sort of earthy sound and I would use it on like. Um, is that like, is that what you used in the beginning of the song Mantra, the sort of cleaner part? No, uh, that was my, that, that was my white Les Paul. And that white and, and that white Les Paul had um, uh, at the time it came, you know, I, I, you know, we had we were under concrete management and they got me a sponsorship with Gibson. Now, every sponsorship Gibson is notorious that they don't give anybody an effort free guitar. The only person getting free guitars is like Slash, mm. like no joke. Like they are like they have sponsorships, but it's like you get 50% off the list price artist or pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Our artist pricing. So, which was great. I wasn't complaining. Like, you know, uh, you know, when you're paying half the price, you know, at that point, less balls are starting to get really expensive too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I remember when I went in there and I ordered it from that guy, do you ever meet Jimmy Archie? Who was oh, the Gibson yeah, of course, guy. Of course. Yeah. I loved him. He was super cool. Me and him got along great. He's still working in guitar shops, I think, seven, uh, 17th Street Guitar. He's still in New York, and his son, Andrew's in the business, too. Oh, really? Yeah. He was great. And, and, and um, I remember because, because they were gonna, I was going to pick out the guitar, and they were going to send it to me. And I was like, dude, I want to play the guitar. Like, I want to be able to play it. He's like, trust me. I'm going to get you an incredible sounding guitar. And at that time, you know, because I was pre-ordering it from Gibson, um, he said they come with two different stock pickups. One is the standard PAF. And then they had a little bit more of a higher output PAF. He said, which one do you want? I was like, the higher output one, of course. <laughs> Duh. And um, man, oh, man, I still have this, you know, even to this day, I still have that pickup, that high output stock pickup from gibson sounds so great oh my god That's it's so got like a it's got like a brightness and a ring to it man oh my god it's 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 awesome especially if you're doing kind of like um notey kind of stuff which was what i started doing in like shelter that's all that less ball for any of that kind of like notey leady stuff that less ball with the high out that custom with the high output pickup in it Man, it just rang like a bell. It was so good for that kind of stuff and like octave stuff. It would, for some reason, with that pick with that pickup, it, it kind of sounded very, very bright. And so, if I would do like octave stuff over it, it would just lay so nicely above the rhythm guitars, just naturally, that it would just sit in a different frequency. Yeah. Man. I, I just, I just, that, that's when I really started to you know, understand about like tone and, you know, and I tell you, it, being in the studio with Tom Soares for bringing it down, I kind of understood there's a whole science to this stuff. You know, great records don't happen by accident. He's tuning the drums, you know, to different like notes and stuff. And, you know, you know, of the song um, we're building amp cabins you know, to, you know, to get like super heavy sound yeah, where you, yeah. you take a, you take a full, two full stacks powered by two different amps. You face all the cabinets near each other, but you can't put them in an exact square. You have to, there's a whole science of how you yep. kind of put them. So some air escapes and you don't get phasing problems and stuff like that. And then you put all these different mics. Um, I remember I walked, you know, when we did, you know, he did, um, Tom Soares was really, really great. Like he really helped it, you know, in, in my search for tone, he was one of those key players too, because, you know, one of the, one of the albums that really raised the bar as far as like tone went in the New York hardcore scene was Leeway. That first Leeway record born to expire. I mean, oh, yeah. You guys Without know exactly question. what I'm talking oh, about. Oh God. Yes. All the records sounded kind of crappy. Like, you know, like, you know, Warzone and Gorilla Bits, you know, whatever. They sounded great. And they're all great records. But 
when you put on that leeway record, it was like, holy crap. The bar just went way higher. And to think that that was recorded and in the can for a year and a half while all the other stuff you guys were recording was coming out. That was already done and sitting on a shelf waiting to come out for a year and a half. Really? Yeah. That thing sat in the can for about 18 months. Yeah. Tom Sores recorded that record with the whole amp cabin thing. And, you know, so when I went in there and Tom Sores was like, you know, Okay, what are you looking for as far as like guitar stuff? And I was like, and I just go, he's like, okay, we'll build the amp cap. But you know, like I said, you know, it, it's it's all it's all chemistry. So it's like my guitar, my heads in the amp cabin sounded like Judge. It didn't sound like Leeway, but I still, I you know, I really love that guitar. You know, and I really love that guitar sound. And I started, you know, realizing. You know, there's, you know, to get that kind of like wall of sound, you have to fill up all those frequencies. It's a game of frequencies. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not like, you know, in the old days, like, you know, you listen to some of my favorite records, they're they're crappy recordings, but there's something lo-fi and awesome about it. Like, you know, you you listen to like the cause for, you know, cause for alarm. Oh yeah. that, that, Yeah. That EP. And the guitar is so thin, like the frequency that it takes up is like this. And it's very kind of like on the high side. There's no bass. There's no mid. It's just all that kind of like sizzle. I love that record. It's got a kind of cool sound to it. But at this point, I'm trying to build. I'm trying to like when I when you hear that guitar, it bowls you over. Like it's like a tidal wave. It's like a wall that's coming at you. Like that's what we were trying to do with Judge. And that doesn't happen by accident. You have to fill up all those frequencies. A magic frequency record guitar tone that sounds like hell, but is magic. Tim Armstrong's guitar tone on the Operation Ivy record. Oh, yeah. It's one of the worst sounding guitar sounds ever. It's a tin can, but it's magic and perfect for that record. I can't imagine another guitar sound on that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, and sometimes, and even, uh, you know, even with the Smiths, you know, that, and that wasn't like a big wall of sound, but that, that, you know, that shimmery frequency that Johnny Marr captured, that was gave the band the sound. Totally. So it's not like you yeah. always have to have this wall of sound, but when you want to, and you want to get people moshing, you know, and, you know, the bar is raised, especially, you know, you have bands like, you know, the Chromags came out with like Best Wishes. I think Judge, Judge might have been recorded before that. Maybe not. Um, but, you know, the bar was going up as yeah. far as like, you know, actual, you know, the sonic level, professional level of what was coming out of hardcore and, and especially in New York. And I think that Judge helped also kind of raise that bar with bringing it down. I think we really kind of captured something that most, yeah. most hardcore bands hadn't captured you know, in in small crappy home studios or whatever. I think without judge, you don't have earth crisis. You don't have snap case. You may have those bands, but you don't have the, the tonal or sonic uh, cosmetics that they ended up becoming. I think judge, judge integrity, all those bands. And those guys have all told me that. I'm sure. (laughs) Well, that's the two for me, my opinion. And I said before, like, when I think of Judge, not necessarily a seven inch, but bringing it down and then the the EP is forget this time. I forget what it's called. Is the that sto- what this uh was it this the storm it was two the storm two? The storm yeah. I don't know what the songs were versus the name of the EP. Anyway, yeah. um the bringing it down and There Will um, Be Quiet is the technical uh, yeah. name of it. Yeah. Uh I knew it was something. I can picture it on the front, but I couldn't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh the killing time LP. And bringing it down, monstrous yeah. introduced metal in a way that we can incorporate this metal tonality into hardcore, and it's not making it cheesy, it's not making it a metal band, but it's incorporating these things that metal had already touched on and pulling them into hardcore, and it just changed the game. And Brightside and, and bringing it down were the two things that did it. 
that Tom Sawyer's did that too. He did yeah. Judge, he did Killing Time, he did Leeway, and yeah. he did Chromax. Leeway, Best I just consider Leeway was a metal band already. They were a metal yeah. band at the time. Yeah, that's <laughs> they're just true. a metal band. But man, that guitar tone, I remember putting on that record and it's just like, wow. So Especially powerful, since it you know? leads in so quiet with that bass line. Yeah. And it just kind of sets you up for this weird, mellow, ominous boom once those guitars come in. Can we, we could I stop mean, the interview. I'll just play that record for the rest of the time. Best wishes, too. I agree. It starts out with, with that kind of, you know, with the drum thing and then down and now. It's like being punched in the face. Yeah. That's a great guitar tone, man, on that record. Fantastic. It is. It is. Um, so Tom Soros was that was kind of like the, the mad genius behind all that stuff. And you know, he was a real engineer. He's he's making real records, you know, platinum records. He did mm -hmm. New Kids on the Block and Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And you know, he 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 actually knew what he was doing. Um well, and you guys, you know, that that sort of magic that you guys found with the combination of him and Dave Desenzo, right? And and you kind of went back to that well a couple of times on recordings and, and it worked. You know, it, at that point, you guys knew specifically what you wanted to hear. You know, I was on the road with you guys for a very short period of time for a very magic tour, which was awesome. But you were very particular about your tone, the way everything was to be set up and sounding. And if something was off, you knew immediately. Yeah. Right? It, it was, it was a lane that you guys were ready to be in and that's where you wanted to be. And, and knowing what you want is, is more important than anything. Uh, other than, you know, there are some guys who you could throw on stage with any gear and they'll get up there and still sound magical. Um, others, you know, you, you know what you want. So. You know, we basically wanted to recreate the sound of the way Mantra sounded live. And uh, it, it was really cool um, when Shelter got bigger. It afforded us the luxury of taking a sound guy on tour with us, too, which really like, you know, you get sometimes you get these house sound guys that they don't know what the hell. Sometimes you get house sound guys that are incredible. And they've been doing sound at that room and they've had heavy music in that room and they can dial it in better than any other, practically any other sound guy there is, you know, but as far as just like consistency, if you have your own sound guy and yeah. that really helps. Do you and remember the name of the sound guy that we took out on that? No doubt tour. He had a mustache and a mullet. And I remember him showing up with a small duffel bag. When I say small, I'm talking 12 inches by six inches. And I'm like, oh, where's your luggage? And he's like, no, that's it. I got my headphones and like an extra T-shirt. And we went on the road for like a month. And that was the only bag he had. I don't remember his name. But if you look at that picture that we took at Henry's house, he's in it. And I'd love oh, yeah. to remember his name and wonder, you know, try and catch up with him. Was it um? Was it Mike Bukowski? I don't know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna Facebook stalk and see if I can find. I it. think uh, I think Mike Bukowski came later. I think it was a different guy. <laughs> uh, whatever happened to Mosh Pit Mike White? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, um, okay, so let's let's jump. In. So, no matter how long we know each other and familiar we are with each other this is a story i've never heard before which is you were possibly starting a new band with zach post inside out is this a true story you never heard that story i've never I, heard the story you know i i can't it's not like we actually like started the band we at, we didn't even we never even really had a whole band but when i was in california you know i was working for revelation and uh judges broken up i you know i didn't have a band so for the first time since i was like 14 years old i wasn't in a band and i didn't like it like i wanted to start something new and um inside out has broken up and i was actually really good friends with zach zach used you know used to come and hang out at rev hq all the time with the sloth crew guys and i said i was like zach me and you should do a band like you should you should sing i'll play guitar and he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. He was actually, he was, he was starting Rage Against Machine at the time. He was already kind of jamming with those guys. 
And it was all, it was kind of shrouded in mystery. Nobody really knew what he was doing. He was hanging out in LA, going to play with these guys who weren't hardcore. We just make fun of him mercilessly because we all thought it was like a, a rap band. But anyway, I was like, Zach, me and you should do like a kind of like a hardcore band, but kind of push the limits a little bit. And he was like, yeah, I'm totally into it. So we actually got together. I it, it was only, we never actually did it like a, a whole band. It was just like me and him kind of got together with one guitar and we would sit at Rev HQ and we would kind of mess around. And it wasn't even like we were really in the songwriting thing. We were just kind of trying to figure out like a sound, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it never gelled past that. It was like me and him got together. I'd sit there with a the guitar. We would kind of like play a little stuff, talk about what kind of band we would like to do. But it was funny too, because I remember he said, we should call the band Rage Against the Machine. Um, and I said, no, that name's not going to work. It's too long. It's never going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's too long. But that he actually said, let's na- let's call the band Rage Against the Machine. But, but it never re- it never actually gelled into a band because he was actually really busy with the actual Rage Against the Machine. Right. Where they kind of like, were, and they were already playing. So it wasn't like any kind of pre-Rage Against the Machine or anything like that. Um, and it wasn't even really a band. It was just me and him kind of got together a couple of times. Um, but then he, uh, you know, he was spending so much time playing with that band that, that, that nothing ever became of it. But yeah. we did jam out a couple of times. And I remember. Did he keep up with that other band? Did he, uh, did, did they he ever do anything? turn into anything? Well, <laughs> you want to know what's funny? We, you know, we all knew he was going off to LA playing with these other guys who weren't hardcore. And we would ask him about it and we we're like, what kind of music is it? And he was like, well, it's got kind of like hip hop influences and stuff like that. We're like, oh my God. You're is this another like doggy rap- style? <laughs> well, it was even like, I mean, it was, bef- it, it was before, like, oh, actually it was after like when, like when they did like doggy rock and stuff like that. We thought yeah. it was going to be something cheesy like that. Like, you know, him doing like rap or something. And he was like, nah, it's, you know, it's, it's heavy, but it's got some kind of hip hop influence. And nobody ever heard anything. And then he was like, okay, Hey, we're playing our first show. I saw Rage Against Machine's first show. They played a party. It was their very first show. They played a party and it was in the OC at some rich kid's house in his living room. He kind of pulled all the furniture out of his living room. And it was a bunch of sort of like, you know, rich California kids in a big house and i remember we were all like oh my god zach's new rap band is gonna play and we were kind of making fun of them and you know we all went there not expecting anything it was at a party and i remember they set up and i was like who the fuck are these guys <laughs> like who are these guys like tom morello's there you know it was, the, it, was the, it was the lineup for the you know for the you know those they written the same lineup that they had forever and i'm looking at these guys and i'm like who are these guys like they don't look hardcore what is this band going to sound like? And they got up there. You know, and they just started playing. They played practically every single song from that first record. And they were phenomenal. Yeah. Like I was expecting the worst. And oh my God, they were so incredible. And like here you have a room, you have like, it's a party. This is not hardcore kids, it's regular normal kind of OC kids, you know, party kids, you know, from all kind of different walks of life, just like young kids. Yeah. And they captured every single person at that party. You know, most of the people weren't into hardcore. Most of the people weren't into like heavy music, like whatever. They're just into like whatever. But they had everybody kind of like bouncing up and down and like Zach was just like gripping. And I knew that they were going to be huge. I knew that they were going to be fucking they were they were the next big thing. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, I love pointing out to people when they're like, "Oh yeah, Rage Against Machine." I'm like, "You got to hear Hard Stance," and like it 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 goes over like like a fart in church. Um, <laughs> so funny enough, my son, ten years old, nine years old right now, still a huge Rage Against the Machine fan. I mean, every soccer match, every soccer practice, we get in the car and he's like, put on rage. That's what he needs to get psyched (laughs) up to go hit the field. 
and he's like, I'm like, okay, which song? And he's like, oh, sometimes it's sleep now in the fire. But lately it's been great song. <laughs> yeah. So lately it's been fistful of steel. And I'm like, fistful of steel. I'm like, hold on. You like this song. Let me play this band called Quicksand for you. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what the beginning of that song is. And man, he's like, yeah, okay, it's good. Could you put Rage back on? Like, all right, sorry, Walter. Um, But funny enough, he loves the bad brains now too, which is awesome. I'll put Eye Against Eye on and we just go at it. So that's, uh, uh, I'm kind of raising him right. Good job. All right. So Dan. Okay. So this is, we, uh, we usually save this for a little later in the conversation and we didn't, we didn't really touch on anything that any gear that you didn't like. Sometimes we have conversations and people discuss the things they didn't like and they unloaded and they got rid of and the stuff they loved and the stuff they hated. But everything we've talked about, you're pretty much, we talked about a lot of the gear that you used and kept, but what would your desert Island setup be? If like you had to pick one of your guitars, one of your amps. Well, first of all, if you pedal, want me to what talk three about, items, if you want me to talk about gear that I didn't like, mm-hmm. was, oh, let's do um, it. Yeah. You know, Go we were on, it. we were on concrete. And I swear to God, this is already a two parter. So let's just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Concrete was such a good management company. They were getting me sponsorships for effing everything. Like, everything. Free snowboards. Free snowboard boots. They hooked this thing up with Vans that every single time we went on tour, Vans would send us the hugest box. I still have Vans from those. Like, we would go on tour. <laughs> they would send us a box with literally, like, 30 sneakers in it. You know, and like we did so many tours, we're getting these huge boxes from bands. We're getting, we're, we're, they're getting us sponsorships for everything, clothes, um, gear. And I remember they said, um, hey man, we're getting you a sponsorship from Crate. Crate is sending you a free full stack. And it's great. Um, Dimebag Daryl plays it. He swears by, you know, these Crate amps. And they sent me this Crate full stack. And it was the same exact one that Dimebag Daryl used. And I plugged my guitar into that thing. And I was like, this thing is garbage. I cannot use this thing. This thing sounds like garbage. Where's my Mesa boogie? Like, like throw this thing out the window. I will never. And they're like, come on, just use it for a few gigs. They gave it to you for free. Take a few pictures. We'll send it back to you. I was like, I can't use this thing. I don't know. It's chemistry. Dime was back Adam me. using that amp for a while? Yes. I remember that. I fought it off on Adam. What? I was like, what I was can't it? use it. It was a thing. crate? It was a crate full stack. I, I don't know what kind it was. I it might have been a, I don't think it was the blue voodoo. It might have been the black. What was the black one black. they did right after that? Was it the black? No, not black. The black heart stuff or? No. Excalibur? I remember Adam playing it and he was playing your SG, that black SG. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, wow. I, I, I I couldn't have been less interested in that amp. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was nice of them to give me a free full stack. Most people would kill for a free full stack of like a professional amp, but man, I did not uh-huh. like that. You know what else they got me? They got me a they got me a Schecter sponsorship, and Schecter custom made me a Shelter guitar. Did you ever see that guitar? No. <laughs> it was a guitar that had this. It, it was um. They said, what they said, what colors do you want? I said, oh, I don't know. Make me a guitar that's the, the color of the Mets. Like maybe a Mets blue with Met with like the shelter chakra and the Mets orange. Oh, okay. So they made me this guitar and it had the chakra that was kind of like inlaid right on the top of the guitar. And you know, they worked for months on it, you know, and finally it came back. This is your big break. You're getting this free custom shelter Schechter guitar. And it looked really cool. I was like, okay, great. I plugged in. I was like, nope. I'm never <laughs> like I played that thing for two minutes. So I'm never using this guitar. This thing just doesn't sound right. F this guy. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. It feels more like a strat than a Les Paul. I am not into this guitar. I never use it. I think I I don't think I ever played it live once. Where is it now? 
Um, I sold it on eBay for like three grand or something like that. Oh, the whole wow. bi- the whole bidding war over. I was like, good riddance to this effing thing. Well, <laughs> 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 you know, just because it had the shelter chakra in it, a bunch of a bunch of fans of the band were bit, were bidding on it. But wow, awesome. I think you know the guy, funny? The, you know, the guy the, when I sold it to him, the guy said, sign it for me. I'm going to put it on my wall. And I was like, do you want me to sign the back? He goes, no, sign the front next to the shelter chakra. I'm going to put it on my wall. So it's probably just hanging on some kid's wall. I don't, I don't even think he's playing it. Well, you know, it's funny. You hit on it. It's, it, I mean, it's not a Les Paul. It's not, they, they never came out with a guitar that's like that. Funny enough. Uh, we're going to see Jawbox this week, and Jay Robbins, like the whole band, plays Schecters, but they're like tellies and P basses, and they're they're I mean they're Fender type guitars played by Fender type guitar players, and it sounds great in what well, they do. I mean, it, when you're talking, especially if you're going to talk a telly shape, their telly shape is called the PT. It's the mm-hmm. Pete Townsend. That's where he got his telly. Wasn't a telly. Right. His telly was a Schecter. What? Really? That's how they got their start. They were a, a parts guitars uh, company when they got their start. And their PT is because Pete Townsend was the the famous player that was playing Schecters, but they can't use his name, obviously. You know, you know, I'm sure their guitars are fine. I'm sure some people love their guitars. It just, I, it just didn't feel right in my hands. Yeah, well, like, yeah. I don't know. That's what and it's all t- about. And I tell you, I was always a Gibson guy, and I was just swore I'm just going to play SGs and Les Paul. I, I was, I was like, I'm just a Les Paul guy. I'm just going to play Les Paul. But I got that SG, and man, I really fell in love with it. That that is to this day, that guitar is just such a wicked sounding guitar. I love it. Let me ask you this: What is your opinion on playing that guitar before and after the headstock break and repair? <laughs> uh, sounds exactly the same. How do you feel about it, like stability-wise? Do you feel it's more stable, less stable? Probably less stable. Yeah. You know what I mean. Um, I remember Adam effing broke that guitar uh, at the Dynamo Festival. We were playing in front of 100,000 people, and that guitar was in a stand. And he was so nervous before we played that show. I think that might have been his first show that he played with Shelter. We played in front of 100,000 people. <laughs> and he threw up backstage. He was so nervous. <laughs> Yeah, you know, at that point, I had played thousands and thousands and thousands you know, of shows. So, like, whatever, 100,000 people. I mean, it was kind of cool to play in front of 100,000 people, but I was sort of a seasoned vet at that point. But he was brand new, and he got thrown into the fire. And when he was walking off stage, he walked into the guitar stand and knocked over, and he, he broke the headstock. I was so pissed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I still have that guitar. Um, I don't have the um, I don't have the Gorilla Biscuits Les Paul anymore. The one from Al Brown. I sold it to. It was a time where where my kids were born, and I was like, "That's it. I'm not playing music anymore." I started selling a lot of my guitars, and that guitar was so special to me. I mean, it was played. Al Brown played it on Start Today. Mm. I played it on uh, uh, Bringing It Down and all the Shelter records. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to just sell this to some rando guy. I want to sell it to somebody who's actually in a in a band. And someone told me, hey, the guy from First Step wants to buy your guitar. And I was like, perfect. The First Step is up and coming straight edge man. So I sold it to uh, was it Aaron player for the First Step. Aaron, yeah. Aaron, I didn't so realize that. That's awesome. He still has that guitar, and he played it on a bunch of First Step records. So it's kind of still in the still in the scene. Nice. Well, let the record reflect. I get first dibs on Greeny if you ever want to get rid of it. I'll never get rid of it. I know you won't. I know you won't. (laughs) Uh, You you want to know something interesting? That that original black Youth of Today, Les Paul, those Youth of Today shows were so wild. Like, I can't even tell you how, you know, every show was like that. And we were touring nonstop. It was like Youth of Today in a small club that has a 300 cap capacity and there's six, 800 kids in there. <laughs> so many kids on stage, you know, kids running into you like every second after like two or three years of youth today, by the time we did that 89 youth today tour, 
that guitar, it was just trashed from sweat and kids <laughs> running into it. And it was like marked up big gouges at it. You know, the elect the, the electrics didn't really work right. The, the, you know, the knobs, everything like didn't work right. Um, I sold it in Europe. I sold it to this uh, uh, this guy. Uh, God, where does he live? This is in Holland somewhere. And um, the guy just called me up. He goes, hey, man, I, I want to sell you back your original Youth of Today guitar. So I may actually get that guitar back. On this that tour? That is amazing. Uh, I don't know. On the, we, were, we were supposed to play. I was supposed to do it on this tour, but the tour got um, rerouted. rerouted. So we're not playing in Holland anymore. Because you guys were actually supposed to be in England at the end of June originally. Yeah, we were, yeah, we were supposed to play that Outbreak Fest, which I heard was like incredible. I'm so bummed we didn't get to play it. We were supposed to play Hellfest in France, which is like one of the biggest rock festivals in Europe. Looked we didn't get awesome. To, we didn't get to play that either. Yeah. But yeah, I was supposed to get that guitar back. How cool would that? I would love to, you have to. see it. That's amazing. Whole, yeah. How cool would it be to have that guitar? and play a Youth Today show with that original guitar. I'll tell you what. I have uh, one of the guys that works for me lives in the Netherlands. If you want him to procure it for you and ship it back, if you can't, I'll I'll get him involved and I'll have him. Oh, dude, let's do it. I got to get the (laughs) guitar. I got to play a Youth Today show with that guitar. Man, I'd be so stoked. And if you're not going to buy it, I'll buy it for safekeeping and you can play it whenever you want. All right. Awesome. (laughs) I'm going to murder James and buy it instead of him. Dude, I'm holding you to that. We got to work on that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I thought we were going to get that. Um, You know, here's another thing. Um, Recently, you know, I'm doing this new band. uh, I, th- I think we're going to call the band values here. We're almost finished with the record. We're actually recording with, uh, with Tom Soros. And um, I got sponsored by Fender um, for it and for shelter too. He sent me a bunch of guitars for shelter and I never played Fenders. I always effing hated Stratocasters. Like you put a Stratocaster in my hand. I'm like, I can't fucking play this thing. Fuck this. <laughs> Fuck this guitar. It could be the same Stratocaster that Jimi Hendrix played. You put it in my hands. I'm just like, I can't play this thing. I don't know. Right. Um, uh, but he said, hey, do you want a guitar? And I was like, oh, Fender's. Uh... I was like, whatever. Send me a Telecaster. Joe Strummer played one. And he sent me. Um, shit, I wish I had it. He sent me a Telecaster. And man, oh, man, I love that guitar. Yeah. I just love it. It's one of the things in my arsenals. Like I've been, I've been using it all over this new recording, and I just love the way it sounds. We're it's both just big Telly guys, so we, yeah. we know what you mean. I'm converted, dude. I am converted to that Telly. And he also sent me a, a P bass that we used on it. Thing just sounds incredible. And he also sent me one of those Joe Strummer acoustic guitars. No, oh, yeah. I used, and I used it all over the record, man. That guitar sounds amazing. Too. So who's he? Let, let's plug him. Uh, Jason Klein. Nice. Those guys, guy. are, those guys are very friendly to hardcore bands, punk rock bands. Um, I remember when Quicksand first got back together, we were all out for a NAM show and they were playing in Hollywood. And I got there and like half the company was there up to the, their vice president of sales, Justin, who was a killer guy, really, really great guy. All big fans of, of our genre of music. So that's great that they heard. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I tell you on this new record, I used the Telecasters is the main guitar, like guitar left. You could call it. Although I did a ton of guitar tracks and then we, and then I used my Les Paul custom as like the other main kind of rhythm track. And man, those two guitars sound so good together. It's all the frequency layers, right? Yeah. And then I did all the leads with the, uh, all the lead stuff and like the actual like solo kind of stuff with the SG and just the way that the SG sits on top of those rhythms, man, it's the perfect combination. Yeah. So I'm really psyched with those three guitars that I have now. And plus man, that, you know, I was, I was never really like an acoustic guitar guy and he sent me that guitar. Um, 
and I've just been using it all over the all over the record. It it, it it's also very bright sounding, so it sits on top of those heavy guitars really nicely. So it's a it's a great guitar. All right, so back to Dan's original question: <laughs> Desert Island. You only get three pieces of gear. What are they? I like it. I like asking it because I personally, I, I'm looking at a pile of 14 amps or so over there. There's like 15 or so guitars in the corner over this way. I can't answer this question and I refuse to. Well, I tell you, um, I love, um, I love dual rectifiers. I would have to say, you know, when I use the, the dual rectifier that I use for shelter, there used to be, do you remember that guy? He was like a, a, an amp guy, amp repair guy, but he also hot rotted amps. His name was Blackie. Blackie Pagano. Tubes yeah. 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 He He's worked took, on a ton of my amps. Yeah. He, he took my, I, I bought a dual rectifier, you know, just a, just, you know, from the music store. And I heard that, oh, there's this guy Blackie in the in the village that you know does amp repair and he will kind of like he'll sort of custom custom you know custom tone your amp just to the way you want to sound it, just the way that you want your, your amp to sound. That way it doesn't sound like every other bozo that just walked into a music store and bought a dual rectifier. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because yeah. those dual rectifiers, let's face it, they're like Marshalls. They just really have one sound. You know, they're not like incredibly diverse amps. You know what right. I mean? And so I like that idea. I didn't want, I didn't want it to sound exactly like every other dual rectifier. So I took it to that guy, Blackie. I have no idea what he did to it. But man, he hot rotted that that dual rectifier, and it just it sounds like it sounds like Message of the Bhagavad. You know what I mean? That it sounds way different, and it has a way different color to it than any other dual rectifier. Although it has that same kind of powery, right? You know, um, power sound that the dual rectifier has. So if like if this is going to be like a desert island thing, it's that original blacky modded dual rectifier that i had with my les paul custom there's something about the chemistry with that amp and nice. that guitar it's message of the bhagavad that's exactly what it sounds like so what do i get i get a guitar and you get three and, and three things one more thing yeah whatever whatever things you decide you need all right. Well, if I'm on a desert island, I got to have that Joe Strummer acoustic because sometimes you just want to pick up a guitar and play some there you acoustic go. stuff. You're the first person to go with two guitars. There you go. Really? Yeah. 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 I mean, most what, people what, look for a pedal to put in, but you're not really a pedal guy. Yeah. I'm not really. I'm not really a pedal guy. If I if I do something, I'll use like a little chorus <laughs> on some on some lead stuff. I'm more of a plug and play type guy. For sure. Yeah, I'll take those three. And I'm and I'm set. So nice. you know, we we never even touched on your your article writing, um, you know, schism, Warren illusion. If if maybe we'll pick this up for a, a second, probably a third episode at this point. Um, a lot of what you wrote in those original War on Illusions, um, as a young guy, and this is before we knew each other, um, got me thinking. You know, you don't you don't chant Kirk Hammett, Kirk Hammett, and suddenly feel blessed, right? Well, you know, it's um it's funny too because you know, end hits that re-released all those shelter records, they did such a good job on it. Do you see those shelter records? Yeah. When 20 Summers Pass, it opens up, yeah. it's got the pop-up gatefold yep. with all the splattered vinyl and everything. Man, those guys go all out. I was really like, you know, happy with the way they re-released those. He also re-released it as a book. Did you see that? More an illusion. I did. Oh. I never got one. And you know, I hadn't re you know, I hadn't flipped through those since, you know, whatever, you know, since the 90s. Yeah. And so he wanted to really he wanted to redo it. They kind of like just took the ball and ran with it. They got all the old copies, you know, they photocopied them, they cleaned everything up. We did new interviews, they, you know, put new pictures in it, and you know, I I wrote some new stuff for them. Um, but they really did everything else. You know, I didn't really have to go through any of the stuff. So I, it wasn't, I didn't even really have copies of the old ones. 
And so when they sent the book back, that was the first time I just kind of sat down and reread it after decades. Mm. And I was like, and I finished the whole thing and I was like, I'm pretty freaking proud of this, <laughs> you know, like decades later, I was like, this is some pretty interesting stuff, you know, for just like a music person to get this into their hands. And it's a mixture of like music and philosophy and interviews and you have like yeah. Sepultura and Snapcase and all this stuff, but you have this underlying current of, and it wasn't even like, you know, I was necessarily trying to proselytize for the Krishna consciousness movement or something like that. No. It was all, it was all just like kind of little pieces of wisdom that I sort of picked up along the way that kind of anybody could really just kind of apply to the life or relate to like, I really wanted to make it that way where it was just like, anybody could pick this up and be like, well, this is kind of interesting stuff. And it was, it was, it was just relatable wisdom. And, yeah. and you were never very preachy in it. And if anybody can get their hands on the book or the original zines, it's just, it's good. It's thought provoking. You know, it's, it's a snapshot in time for probably for you and Ray and shelter where you've got a lot of hardcore kids who are still um, not understanding the whole Krishna consciousness thing. Um, pretty probably anti-religion to begin with. And at shows, you guys were being challenged left and right by people, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't even say asking questions, but probably a little more um, uh, antagonistic about um about your religion and and it's it's an interesting way that you approach trying to open their eyes to you know to how to how to how how you see it through your eyes well i tell you that fanzine really helped you know because like you said when i first joined the band you know before uh, even even like when i did that very first tour me and Sammy played that very first shelter tour. It was yep. shelter quicksand and inside out with mm -hmm. Zach from Rick who went on to play in rage against machine. He was singing for inside mm -hmm. out. <laughs> um, and people were protesting, picketing, showing up, you know, with like placards and signs. I mean, it was ridiculous. The backlash <laughs> that we were, we were getting on that tour. And even when I, you know, even, you know, after, you know, I've officially joined shelter in like, I think it was like 91, that was still there. I remember that first tour that we did when Shelter went to Europe. Oh my God. You get these like crusty punks throwing stuff at us and, you know, fuck you and your, you know, keep religion out of hardcore and all this like, you know, stuff that I was just like, you think we're fanatical. You guys are the fanatics. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, that's was, that was one of the reasons why I did that fanzine because I felt like, People are really kind of misunderstanding what this band is really about. And I think there's some essential truths that we're singing about in, in this band that I think are relatable to everybody. There's sort of a human condition that we all kind of feel that materialism just doesn't live up to what we think it's going to live up to. And, you know, we think if we get a lot of money, we're going to be happy. We think if we get a lot of fame, we get a lot of sex, you know, all this stuff is going to make us you know, wildly happy. And it's a human experience. I don't care who you are, that it just doesn't pan out that way. Um, that materialism isn't what it's promised to be through advertising. And, you know, so I, I, I tried to really just kind of take those kind of universal truths that could strike a chord in anybody that picked up that magazine and anybody that listened to Shelter, you know, hey, this is stuff that you could even probably relate to it if you just thought of it. And um, I think that fans, you know, so, you know, by the time we started with Attaining the Supreme and then by the time Mantra came out, it was completely different. We weren't getting people picketing the shows. Like people actually, you know, I think it because people took the time out to like actually read the lyrics with that fanzine also that, you know, tried to explain you know, a little bit of the philosophy behind the band where people just kind of said, it's a little weird, but Hey man, I can kind of get, I can kind of get behind some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm not ready to shave my head like, like these crazy MNFers, but you know, I'm actually like, I'm reading some of these songs and they're, they're relatable to me. Like, yeah, I think this is kind of like cool. And I, I, 
I, I do think that the fanzine helped. It helped kind of like demystify the band as just like this hardcore version of Striper. You know what I mean? <laughs> which was which was not what Shelter was at all. <laughs> And That's uh, amazing. yeah, and you know, so even like decades later, when he put it in the book and he sent it to me, and I just I sat there in one sitting, I went to a coffee shop and I read the whole thing. I was like, Yeah, I'm proud of this. It's a good feeling, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good absolutely. feeling like when you put out a record and you know, or you write something and then you release it and then you yeah. really feel like, Hey man, I'm I'm really proud of this. Like, you know, I, I put a lot of heart and soul and my creative energy into this and you know, I, I think it came out really well. For sure. So when are we going to see more True Till Death merch? Oh, God, soon. I've been so, my life is so kind of t- upside down and busy and just been crazy that I, I, I haven't been on top of it. I, I definitely have to get on that. There's things that are on my bucket list that are actually like that were on my New Year's resolution list for 2022 and that was one of the things you know to really get that going again but i've just been so insanely busy i've just been i've been i've been really busy trying to finish this record for this new band and uh who's in this new project um it's a girl singer it's it's very melodic hardcore we're probably going to call the band values here because it's sort of um uh if you took dag nasty and you mixed it with me that's what the band kind of sounds like. Um, it's melodic hardcore, but it's got a girl singer. Uh, it's powerful. It's 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 probably even it's it's shelter melodic kind of kicked up a kicked up one notch, but it's still kind of like hardcore influence. I'm and super half the proud. band's like European, right? She's European. The rest of the guys are 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 American. Um, but it's coming out really really good. And Tom Source is kind of knocking it out of the park. Uh, with the production on it and i'm super psyched for it so Can't that'll be out. Yeah, yeah that'll be sure. out soon too we're almost done we got two more two more songs to finish for a full album nice very cool all right man well thank you so much for spending a couple hours with us i i hope everybody enjoyed the uh the various tangents we went on uh this was so such a fun episode to do together i feel um, like there's more to do Oh yeah, no, there's still we'll so much more again. to talk about. Well, but, we, um, we we did cover a lot of the tone and the guitars and stuff like that. Yeah, that, we did. That, that was fun because I usually don't talk about that stuff in interviews. Well, it was That's it was great to have you on. It's great to see your face, and God, we really have to get together. It's been far too long since. Yeah, we for been. sure. Yeah, you two guys are, a, are are two special kind of fanatics. <laughs> and I could talk that I could talk about all this stuff with. I really I appreciate you guys. Awesome. And we appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. All right, brother. Take, Take care. care.